1 Kings in chapter 8. 1 Kings in chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 12 to verse 21. When the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, we read in verse 12 that Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king (coughs) turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand was fulfilled, has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple. But your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple to the name of the Lord God of Israel. There I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. In verses 14 and 15 we read that Solomon did two things in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel. First of all, we read in verse 14 that he blessed the entire assembly while they remained standing. And then in verse 15, he blesses the Lord God of Israel. There are no words of blessing recorded with regard to the first thing that he did. But verses 15 and following to verse 21 record for us the words that Solomon used to bless God. And these are the words that are our concern this evening. And here we find, as Solomon begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it. Here we find a man who is the king over God's people. A man who is taken up with God. With what God has said, with what God has done, and he expresses it in praise to God. He, at this point, is the mouthpiece of the gathered assembly, the representatives of the nation of Israel, and he leads them in the praise of God. I want to do three simple things this evening. First of all, I want to examine with you his theme. What is his theme? Secondly, 
to explain to you why this is his theme, and then thirdly, how we may imitate Solomon in praising God. Firstly then, what is Solomon's theme? I will put it to you that his theme is that the Lord God is worthy of exaltation. The Lord God is worthy of exaltation. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This God, he says, is to be praised. This God is to be lifted up. His name is to be exalted. He is blessed. He is worthy of adoration and praise on the part of Israel, who is his people. This is the Sovereign Lord. This is their Redeemer who said, Solomon says, would dwell. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. This Lord who God has taken up residence now in this temple that we have built. This one whose presence is symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant and who is symbolized in the cloud. The cloud of glory. He comes. Here is God condescending to dwell amongst men. In grace to dwell among sinful men and women. And to make Jerusalem his dwelling place. And, David, and Solomon says, such a God is worthy of exaltation. He is worthy of praise by us this day. Now Solomon could have done a number of things when he gathered the whole of Israel together when he came to dedicate the temple on the one hand he could have drawn attention to himself and indulged in a little bit of self-congratulation this was the end of a long process of building planning, construction he had conducted an international treaty with the king of Tyre in order to bring timber for the house of the Lord. There had been the organisation of close on 200,000 men to assemble the timber and the stones and the metal. It was a fabulous building, gleaming golden in the midday sunshine. But he doesn't indulge in one word of self-congratulation. On the other hand, he could have congratulated the men who built it. He could have spoken of David, his father, who had begun to collect all the materials that were needed, particularly his own treasure house. He could have spoken of uh, the skill of Hiram in making the bronze and praised him, making the bronze pillars and the bronze instruments, and then perhaps have another little way of speaking about himself again, because he was the one who was ultimately humanly responsible for this temple. Neither of these things. I'm sure Solomon appreciated the human labour force and all the efforts that had gone into building this temple. But Solomon on this occasion is taken up with God. He's occupied with God. He's taken up with God's gracious presence among them. And what this meant for them as the people of God and what it meant for him as the king over the people of God. 
And he says, he is the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be him. And he alone is to be blessed. He alone is worthy of exaltation. Now here is this nation. And the representatives of that nation. Remember how he assembled the elders of Israel according to verse 1. And all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem. It's a national assembly. They are gathered there in Jerusalem. They are gathered there with their king. And they are gathered there in the presence of God who has chosen to come and visibly dwell among them. And they are now being called as this gathering, as this assembly, to worship the Lord their God. Solomon is the mouthpiece. And he recounts before them what God has said and what God has done. God, not Solomon, is centre stage. Now, if the Lord God is worthy of exaltation, then that has implications for us. And for the way in which we are called upon to worship God. Today, there are some in the professing church of Christ who emphasize that when we come together, it is not primarily to worship God, but rather to edify and encourage one another. They say we worship God every other day of the week in what we do in a general way, but when we come together it is not primarily to worship God. We are coming together in order to encourage one another. Well, I would suggest to you that the opening words of verse 15 leave us with no illusions about what we are to do when we gather together as the people of God. The people of God are assembled. There is a gathering, there is an assembly. God himself is graciously present, visibly present. So much so that the priests cannot even enter in to the temple at this point. And they are gathered to exalt God. He is worthy of their praise. They are engaged in worshipping God. Solomon is the mouthpiece. But they are calling upon the name of the Lord. That's a way of speaking in the Bible which means that we worship. They worship God. Let me give you a couple of instances. For example, when God appeared to Abraham east of Bethel, when God made himself known and appeared to him, what did Abraham do? We read in Genesis 12 and verse 8 that Abraham built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. God revealed himself. Abraham worships. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 when the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed in Corinth through Paul and others, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men and women in that pagan city were called to be God's holy ones. The church, the assembly, the gathering of God's holy ones. And they gathered together. And what do they do in common with all the saints? They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their God and ours. That is what Solomon and the people of 
of God in his day are doing. They are worshipping God. They are gathered together as the people of God. And the whole meaning and purpose of them gathering together as the people of God, the whole uniqueness of that event is that God is among them. And therefore God is to be adored and God is to be worshipped. God is to be exalted. Therefore when we gather together as the people of God, I'm not saying we don't gather together to edify one another. I trust we do. But the greatest way to edify surely is to gather together as a foretaste of heaven and to worship and to praise and to bless the God who is pleased to dwell with men and to save us from our sins. There's another emphasis that we find today. Again, which again is a distraction because it makes it the gathering of God's people to be very different to this. They are not there in Jerusalem. Abraham did not gather and worship there in Bethel. And neither did the Corinthians in that pagan city to simply have some kind of spiritual experience to satisfy their felt needs and enjoy themselves and have a good time. You will sometimes find those who profess to name Christ saying come and have fun and excitement together with us come and have a fun come and celebrate I'm not quite sure what they are celebrating but so much of modern praise seems at times to be centred upon fun and entertainment and having a good time Solomon leads the people of God in exalting the name of their God, their Saviour and their Redeemer. He is the focal point. And when God is no longer the focal point of any professing congregation, any confessing gathered assembly, it is not long before that congregation will cease to be the church of the living God. Because men will take the center stage. And without people realizing it, the Holy Spirit will depart. God is worthy of exaltation. Now why does Solomon reach that conclusion? What is it that God has done? That Solomon and the whole nation now of Israel is taken up with the praise of God. There are some very specific reasons. Here is real worship. There is real content in Solomon's praise. He is not just reciting some kind of mantra. Blessed be the name or blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And repeating it over and over again. And whipping up some kind of enthusiasm. And some kind of experience. No, there is real content. And although the Spirit of God is not specifically mentioned here. There is only one way to understand what is going on here. This is the work of the Spirit of God in this man Solomon. 
And he is leading the praise of God among the people of God. So, secondly, why is the Lord God worthy of such exaltation? Well, there are two reasons in verses 14 to 21. One very specific reason and one more general reason. Let's take the general reason first of all. If we look at verses 14 to 21, we will see that the first general reason is this, that the Lord God has been working according to a long-established plan. A long-established plan and purpose. And Solomon is thoroughly acquainted with that plan and purpose. God has been revealing himself over several centuries, stretching back to the days of Moses in particular, although it goes back, of course, to Abraham and beyond. But as far as the days of Moses were concerned, that was some 500 years or so before Solomon became king. And in Solomon's prayers, you will find many allusions to events and to passages in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And what is part of this long established plan? What are the elements in it? Well we find first of all God chose a people for himself. He redeemed them. Verse 16 Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. There is reference there to that great Exodus event. When God took his people out of the house of bondage. You remember the opening words of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments engraved on the stone tablets which are in the ark. And God identifies himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Those words are the beginning of the words, the words of the covenant engraved on those stone tablets. And you'll notice in verse 21, there is mention of them. I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. God chose, God redeemed a people for himself. He entered into covenant with them. He spoke to them. He gave them his words. He showed them his grace and his power. And he gave them his commandments. He made them a people unlike any other people on the face of the earth. He chose a people. But then verse 16 also tells us that God chose a specific person in this plan. We've moved on now from the days of Moses. Verse 16, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. I chose David to be over my people Israel. This is my people. This is the people I redeemed out of Egypt. They are still my people and David is now the chosen king. He is the shepherd who was taken from the flock and was appointed a shepherd of God's flock to rule, after, to rule over them. A man after God's own 
heart. God chose a person. And God chose a house, David's house, and his descendants, and Solomon in particular. Because God goes on to say, uh, or rather Solomon goes on to say, with regard to God, the Lord said to my father David, verse 18, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. You see, the emphasis all the time is on what God is doing. This is my people. This is a house for my name. I've chosen my people. I've chosen David. I have chosen Solomon. And then there's a third element in this plan. God has now chosen a place. Not only a people, not only a person, but a place. The temple in Jerusalem. Verse 16 again. I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Up to that point, the people of God have not really been settled. You remember how they came through the wilderness and then they came into the land, but there was no one place, there was no central place where God wants to be worshipped. But God has chosen a place. David wanted to build a place, but he was not allowed to do so. But you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 11, when God spoke to Moses, he said, when you come into the land, then you get rest from all your enemies and come to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now verse 21 tells us, God has chosen that place. Although it says in verse 21, there I, Solomon, have made a place for the ark. Solomon is only doing that in response to what God has said. This is the place that I have chosen. There is a place to the ark. For the first time in the history of the people of God, there is a place, there is a permanent temple in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now there is a resting place. Now there is a dwelling place for God. The ark is there in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And Solomon is fully aware of God's long established plan and purpose. Revealed first to Moses and then unfolded down through those centuries to David and then to Solomon. So the Lord has been working according to this long established plan. It's now now coming to a head in Solomon's day. God has been working over many generations. And Solomon is realising that this is the outworking of that plan and that purpose. And as he stands up and blesses the Lord God of Israel, all these things that God has been doing that God has been working out since the days of Moses up until the present day. All these things are part and parcel of his understanding of what God, who now dwells in their midst, 
and is visibly in their midst of what God has been doing. And he's stirring up, as he rehearses these things, he's stirring up the memory of the people of God. He's kindling their interest. He's stirring their affections, their love and their praise, so that they too are carried along with him and taken up with God, what he has said and what he will do and what he has done. There is the general reason why Solomon is exalting God. But there is a very specific and immediate reason, a second reason. And that lies in the faithfulness of God. The second reason is that the Lord is totally faithful to all his spoken words. These plans are part of God's spoken words, yes. But they're often expressed in specific promises. And what captures Solomon's heart and mind on this specific occasion is that God has been faithful to all his promises, but to one promise in particular. He says God has followed this promise through and he has made this promise good. This is what grips his mind and his heart and evokes this praise of God. There it is in verse 15, first of all. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it. Again in verse 20, he mentions this again. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. Literally when we read here of God fulfilling his word, verse 15 and again in verse 20, it literally says, I will raise up my word. I will set it up. I will make it to stand. I will establish it. I will perform what I have said. I will do it. <coughs> and that is echoed again in the next prayer of Solomon in verse 24. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Solomon now very specifically reflects upon the specific promise that God gave to David. David is now dead and buried. Solomon is now the king. And Solomon says, what you promised to, your, to, to my father David, you have fulfilled through me his son, according to your promise. We've drawn attention before to this phrase. One of the best commentators simply calls this phrase, who spoke with his mouth and has fulfilled it with his hand, it just simply says that is a marvellous line. But it captivated Solomon's mind. And ought to captivate our mind. This is something about our God. This is the reason why his name is to be blessed. Why his name is to be exalted. 
The glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord. As the ark is brought up, David was not allowed to build the temple. The Lord promised David that Solomon would build that temple. And now that has come to fulfilment. Just as the Lord said to my father David, this is what it's all about. What is happening today in Israel is because God is in our midst and this God is fulfilling with his hand what he spoke with his mouth. That's the kind of God he is. And therefore, he is to be praised. He is to be exalted. He is to be blessed. Now you might read selectively verses 20 and 21 and think that Solomon is blowing his own trumpet. I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel. I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. There I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord. Is it really the case? Is Solomon doing that? Is this his doing? If he believed that, then he would never have spoken the praise of God. Look at the first phrase in verse 20. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And as a consequence of that, I have filled the position of my father David. As a consequence of that, I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. It's as the Lord promised. This is according to his word. This is his word that's being performed. This is his word that's being fulfilled before your very eyes. God is here. Because he said he would dwell in the dark cloud. Here he is in his chosen resting place. His chosen dwelling place. Here he is in all his condescending grace. The God who dwells in the highest heavens is amongst us in fulfilment of his word. Therefore you see God is to be blessed because of his faithfulness because of his willingness and because of his power to keep what he has promised. And I want to underline to you, so that you get it into your minds and into your own hearts, this is the kind of God that our Redeemer is. He is the kind of God who when he speaks, He speaks with power and he speaks faithfully to such an extent that his word will be, must be, cannot be anything other than fulfilled according to his plan and to his purpose. One of the greatest declarations of this characteristic of God is found in the mouth of ungodly Balaam. In Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? That's the kind of God, and even an ungodly Balaam knew that, and knew that he could not contradict the word of God. How much more than Solomon? How much more the people of God? If we know our God, then we know him as the faithful God who speaks with his mouth and fulfills his word with his own hand. We ought to stand in awe of our God. 
This is characteristic of him. What do we find in the opening pages of our Bibles? We find those declarations about the word, the power of God in bringing the world into being. He created. He spoke with his mouth and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It's summarized for us in Psalm 33 and verse 9. That is our God. The God who speaks, the God who fulfills, the God who is totally faithful to all of his words. And that is always true of God. Always true of God. It is as true today as it was when God brought this world into being. It is as true today as it was in the days of Moses, in the days of Solomon and his father David, as it was in the days of Paul. So it is today. Solomon interestingly says in verse 56, Blessed be the Lord. This is after the temple has been dedicated. And he blesses the assembly and blesses God again. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Not one word. Not one jot. Not one tittle. All has been fulfilled. And were Solomon alive today, he would be able to say together with us, not one word of God has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through all his servants, the prophet, through all his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. All that he has spoken will and must come to pass. So what we find in these verses here, in verse 15, verse 20, verse 24, it's not an isolated instance. Everything, everything that God has spoken. Did he say, did he not say that he would deliver his people? Is that not what he promised to Moses and to the nation? That he delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians? Did he repent of that promise? No. Did he promise them a land flowing with milk and honey? The land of Canaan? And rest from their enemies? Did he lie? No. Did he promise a place where he would put his name? Has he not done it? In Solomon's day? Did God promise a king after his own heart? Did he not raise up David? Did he not make good then his promise? Did you begin to see Begin to have it impressed upon your hearts why Solomon is so taken up with God. He has good reason to be taken up with God. You have good reason. I have good reason to be taken up with this God. Because this God who is pleased to dwell in the dark cloud there among his people, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God, my God, your God. My Saviour Jesus Christ is being spoken of here. This is the kind of God that He is. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They are the kind. He is the kind of God. 
who speaks. And when he speaks, that word must be fulfilled. He promises, and the words must come to pass. Otherwise he ceases to be God. And our lips are then silent, for we have nothing to say in praise of him. Solomon, though, is gripped, he's captivated by this God and by the faithfulness of this God and his ability to perform everything that he says. He is enthralled with God. He is excited by God. He is fascinated by God because he is the kind of God who is utterly reliable, utterly dependable. Every time he speaks, Solomon says, I know he will fulfill that promise. That's what he's excited about. That's why he is the spokesman. That's why he's the mouthpiece of the people of God on that day. This prayer, or these prayers, are really one of the greatest prayers in the Old Testament scriptures. And I fear they're often neglected and not appreciated because people think in terms, well, Solomon actually failed, didn't he? He turned away from this God. That was in the latter days of his life. And it should not cause us to cast aspersions upon his genuineness and his sincerity. And it should not stop us learning the lessons that we need to learn from this man as he blesses the Lord God of Israel. So let me go on thirdly then to ask, well how can we imitate Solomon? The scriptures are not given to us just for us to say, well that's nice, that's interesting. They are written for our profit, for us to learn. <coughs> How can we imitate Solomon? Let me first speak to anyone here who is not a believer, to anyone here who is not converted. As you realise that this is the God who speaks and the God who fulfils the promises that he makes, you should also realise that when God speaks of threats and warnings to those who refuse to repent of their sin. Those threats and those warnings are not empty words any more than his promises are empty words. They will come to pass. Doeg that we read of in Psalm 52 at the beginning of our service. Doeg would not be able to stand against God in his wickedness. God threatens the wicked with punishment. And that is a real threat. It is not an empty threat. <coughs> but I want to go further. I want to say to you, if you're not converted this evening, that here is the God who is worthy of your trust and worthy of your praise. But you are not in a fit state to praise him until you come to know him through his Son, Jesus Christ. Here is the one true living God declaring to us his character, his utter and complete faithfulness. A God whom you can utterly rely upon. That is what gripped Solomon. Where can you find anybody else like this God? Do you know a man? Do you know a woman that you can utterly rely upon? That is not even true of the best husband or the best wife. 
or the most obedient son or daughter. It is not true of any man. There is no man comparable, no human being comparable to this God. Why is it that men and women try and prop themselves up with mere human things? You see sometimes people trying to live as if they are leaning upon a walking stick or a crutch that is actually broken. And the moment they put their weight on it, over they go. We find some people, sadly, who turn to alcohol. They can't cope with life, so they turn to alcohol and try and prop themselves up. And what happens? They become dependent upon it and it kills them. What kind of help is that? The only Saviour, the only God is a faithful God, worthy of trust and therefore worthy of praise. The same God who took David from the sheepfold and made him a shepherd over his people is the God who is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and sent the great shepherd of the sheep. His Son, Jesus Christ, as the shepherd, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek and to save you, a sinner. You are lost. You are a wandering sheep. You've gone astray. You do not know the shepherd. You do not know his love. And you try to make the best of your life, perhaps. Yet here is this God who stands before you in all his faithfulness. Here is Jesus Christ who says to you, I've come into the world to save sinners like you. That's a promise. That's his word. He saves those who call upon him. That's what he says. You believe in me, you have everlasting life. Is our Saviour deceiving us? Is that a word that is empty? No, it is a word that is full of promise, full of power. Those who trust in him. They have everlasting life. They are forgiven. They are saved from their sins. It's not a matter of leading a moral life. It's not a matter of earning your way to heaven. It's a matter of confessing your life is a mess and you're a failure. And if God was to judge you for your sins, you'd be finished. And trusting and casting yourself as that lost and guilty sinner who deserves help upon the faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He promises eternal life. He promises the forgiveness of sins to all who cast themselves upon him. But if you are already a Christian, how can you imitate? How can you imitate Solomon? Is your heart captivated by God? Are you enthralled and excited by the character of your God? <coughs> you want to find out more about Him? How can you imitate Him? Let me give you three counsels. First of all, never give way to disillusionment and despair. Never give way to disillusionment and despair. A despondent heart will never be a praising heart. In this life you will have trials. 
You will have tribulations. There will be days of temptation. There will be days of failure and sin. And Satan is a master craftsman. He knows how to sow seeds of doubt about the love and the faithfulness of God. He knows how to drive you down, to depress you, to try to drive you to despair. There are days when you will be perplexed and puzzled by the providence of God. There will be days of trouble, there will be days of sickness, disappointments over your children, financial concerns and worries, days of sorrow, days of loss. There may come a day when you are told you have a terminal illness. There may come a day, there will come a day when you must face death. And it may be the death of your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, or some other relative, some close friend. And it's very easy for us to respond and to give way and to become disillusioned and despairing. It's not a matter of stoic resignation saying, well, you can't do anything about these things, we'll just, we'll just do the best we possibly can in the circumstances. My friends, to give way to despair and to disillusionment, to give way to such thoughts, such moods, such feelings, is wrong, it is sinful, and more, it is not necessary. It is not necessary. Why is it not necessary? Because God's words stand forever. And the plans of his heart to all generations. We've been seeing the kind of God that he is. He is faithful. And to whom is he faithful? Well, he is faithful, first of all, to his word. And he keeps the word that he has given and promised to all his people. And not one word of his promises will ever fail to come to pass. And his promises and his faithfulness are never ever cancelled out by even the darkest of dark providences. Those dark providences are intended to drive you into the arms of God and to prove again his faithfulness to keep you. So never give way to disillusionment and despair. Secondly, the second counsel is make the scriptures and particularly the scriptures of the Old Testament your study. What am I saying when I say that? Study the ways and the works and the promises of God. And where will you find those promises made? In all of the scriptures. But in particular, in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Here they are. Here is Solomon rehearsing God's long-term plans and purposes. Here he is rehearsing one specific promise given to David, now fulfilled in his lifetime, on this particular day. How did he know those things? Well, Solomon had the books of Moses. I'm not sure what other scriptures he might have had, but he had the books of Moses and he had the prophets. Nathan was a prophet. 
Nathan was in his household. Nathan had been the prophet that God had dealt with and spoken the words to David. Solomon knew the word of God. He built up this storehouse, this treasure house of the things that God said he would do. And if you're going to fight despair and disillusionment, then you must be more and more persuaded of the absolute faithfulness of your God. And if you will do that, then you must study the Scriptures. 1 Kings 8 is not the end of the story. It's only part of the story. 1 Kings 8 and verse 15 is not an isolated fulfilment of a promise of God. This is typical. This is what God does. This is something fundamental to his character and to his ways. Genesis 3.15 is the seed promise in more senses than one because it promises the seed of the woman. But it is the first promise. It is a seed promise that then grows and is expanded and is fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes, born of a woman, born into this world. Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus Christ, the seed of David, is born in Bethlehem, born to Mary. What is that? if it is not a fulfilment of all that God has been saying he would do, what his mouth has spoken, his hand has fulfilled. Jerusalem, some thirty or so years later, there Jesus Christ, outside the city walls, is nailed to a cross. And he dies on that Friday afternoon. And then he's buried in the tomb. And then on the third day he rises from the dead and appears to the women and then to the disciples and then to the men on the Emmaus road. What is this? If it is not the fulfilment of the words of Jesus and of the Old Testament scriptures, the fulfilment of Isaiah 53, the fulfilment of Psalm 22, the fulfilment of Psalm 69, the fulfilment of Psalm 110, the fulfilment of Genesis 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. And these are not just interesting things. They are telling us about our God and his faithfulness. And it's all there in the word of God. It's all there in the scriptures. Why then do you injure your comfort and your consolation? By not acquainting yourselves with the God who speaks in his word. And speaks through his son Jesus Christ. Our gospel <coughs> is the gospel that's firmly rooted in this book. Take this book away and we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no God. We have no promises. And our faith is stupid and futile. Our brothers and sisters, we have this book. And we have a God who is faithful. A God who is utterly reliable. Well, if you're not to give way to disillusionment and despair, then make the scriptures your study. And then the third counsel is this. Turn what you know about the faithfulness of God, 
the faithfulness of God that you discover in the scriptures, turn it into joyful praise. That's what Solomon did. Solomon is taken up with God. He is enthralled, he is excited, he is fascinated. But he doesn't keep it to himself. He stands up while all the assembly of Israel is there. And he begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, and leads them in praise. He doesn't silently meditate upon it, though I'm sure he had done. But following his silent meditation, he gets among the people of God and he declares how great God is, that he is worthy of exaltation because of his long-term purpose and plan and because of the specific fulfillment of his promises. Is God worthy of our praise? Is this God your God? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and your Saviour? Are you looking and waiting for that day when Jesus Christ returns in glory and according to his word raises you up from the dead and sits you down in heavenly glory with him. The gospel promises us life and immortality. Christ, when he appeared, brought life and immortality into this world. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have a living hope. An inheritance undefiled, incorruptible, undefiled, preserved <coughs> in heaven for those who are kept by the power of God. That's part of his promise. God hasn't finished yet. Shall he not then have the praise for what he has already done in sending Christ? Shall he not have the praise in anticipation of that great day? What will be our occupation in heaven? We will not be sitting around twiddling our thumbs and our fingers. We will be singing the praise of our God and our great Saviour. And part of the theme of our praise will be, Lord, you are the faithful God who spoke with his mouth and fulfilled with his hand what he promised. And all the praise and all the glory belongs unto you. That is what Solomon is doing. There's a sense in which what is happening here is a foretaste of heaven. Because here is a man who is engaged in the praise of God. That again is another reason why I say when we gather together, if this is going to be a foretaste of heaven for us, then the praise of God must be central in our worship. That stands to reason. And that's why it's so important never to isolate yourself from the people of God. You see, that's what despair and disillusionment will tend to do. You say, I don't feel. I don't feel. You're not asked to feel. You're asked to believe and to trust and to rely upon your God. 
Jesus Christ has redeemed us by his precious blood. He has made us kings and priests to serve his God. He has made us living stones. We are a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood called to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what is the key spiritual sacrifice? It is the praise of our lips and of our hearts. Hearts that are enthralled with the faithfulness and the greatness of our God. Amen. Amen.